0: I went to a podcast the other day to talk about comics in an academic way. Comic studies in conversation style, comparing two books all the while. All of a sudden, I began to change. I'm in front of the mic, acting strange. Flapping my arms, I began to cluck. Look at me on the podcast duck. Welcome to Three
1: Panel Contrast.
0: Ahem, <laughs> welcome to Three Panel Contrast. <laughs> the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics in conversation, and sometimes in song through an unauthorized plagiarism of the 1976 disco novelty song, Disco Duck. (music) This month, I am your host, Michael Hancock from the University of Waterloo. And in this episode, we'll be talking ducks and comics, as we discuss Don Rosa's The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, and the first volume of Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck, with art from Frank Brunner, John Bushima, and Gene Cohen. With me in this task are my two foul-weathered friends. Trapped in a podcast they never made, it's...
2: Hi, I'm Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow from Brock University.
0: And someone who's smarter than the smarties and tougher than reviewer two. it's...
1: <laughs> I'm Dr. Andrew DeMan. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University.
0: And after The Feathers Fly, I will also be providing a review of Ariel Dorfman and Armand Madalart's How to Read Donald Duck, a critique of Disney comics for their role in American cultural imperialism. Marxism, satire, airplanes. It's a duck blur of a podcast today, so let's make like Scrooge McDuck and dive right in. Andrew, could you tell us about Don Rosa's Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck? Yes.
1: The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck by Don Rosa has a complicated publishing history. It first saw the light of day in the Danish publication Anders & Co. as a 12-issue series from 1992 to 1994, before being printed in the long-running Uncle Scrooge comic in English from 1994 to 1996, before being collected and printed by Gladstone in 1996 as a cohesive trade paperback, one that went on to win Rosa and Eisner Award. The idea behind the book is compelling. Rosa's study of Disney's second most famous duck is a remarkable experiment in continuity. Mining the Scrooge McDuck comics of legendary creator Carl Barks, Rosa assembles every tedious piece of information he can find on the subject of Scrooge's life prior to his comics introduction in 1947, and assembles these into a continuous narrative, which effectually functions as something between a prequel and an origin story, perhaps both. What sounds like a fan project and clearly is, quickly becomes a deeply engrossing narrative that takes Rosa beyond the role of continuity editor. While the stories do conduct some miraculous work in terms of reconciling contradictions in Scrooge's backstory, so the continuity editing is on point, the story itself captures a lot of the visual and narrative energy of Barks, ultimately creating one of the better and more accessible Scrooge McDuck stories of all time. That last point on accessibility is especially interesting to me given the nostalgia of Rose's compendium, and the extent to which it also trades on nostalgia, and at times deference to Park's originals. This might help explain the anachronistic feel of the story, where, if you told me it was written in 1952, I might believe you. This is perhaps the greatest criticism I can volley at the text, as well as the greatest compliment to Rose's canonical fanfiction. In 1992, we got a Scrooge McDuck story that had all the elements of the classics, and maybe even something more, which is something that we can discuss today.
0: Anna, could you set up what we'll be looking at in Howard the Duck?
1: So Howard the Duck, the character,
2: was created in 1973 by writer Steve Gerber. Um, he originally appeared in comics featuring the horror character Man Thing, sort of Marvel Comics version of Swamp Thing, kind of sort of, um, and grew <laughs> popular enough that he graduated in 1976 to his own self-titled comic, also written by Gerber and penciled by, among other people, John Shema But for most of its run, Gene Colan, he would become the regular artist for most of the run. This is the series we're looking at today, uh, focusing on the first six issues with a few detours into later ones, possibly. So Howard is a Donald Duck-esque anthropomorphic duck from Duck World, where everyone is anthropomorphic ducks. He's sucked through a dimensional portal, Space Jam style, into our world, where he doesn't win basketball games, but does have a lot of zany, increasingly improbable adventures, most of them alongside his human friend and sometimes love interest, the beautiful and resourceful Beverly. These adventures feature Howard tangling with sorcerers, hell cows, turnip men, living gingerbread men, Canadian separatists equipped with impenetrable beaver-based exoskeletons you may not get to that one, um, supervillains such as Dr. Bong, whose name originates not from a passion for smokable green stuff, but rather a giant gold bell-shaped helmet. In a memorable storyline, Howard also runs for president. This presidential run, which spans several comic book issues and was supported by the sales of pins reading Get Down, America! Vote Howard for President. It was the 70s. Um, speaks to the character's tremendous popularity, which was as improbable as Howard's own adventures. In the actual real-world presidential election of 1976, Howard the Duck received several thousand write-in votes. (laughs) It's understandable, given the character's popularity, that there was early interest in adapting Howard into other mediums. This eventually led to the infamous 1986 Howard the Duck film produced by George Lucas, which is widely remembered as one of the biggest boondoggles in the history of modern blockbusters. More recently, Howard has had cameo appearances in several Marvel Universe films, including the Guardians of the Galaxy films and Avengers Endgame. He's also set to star in a new animated series on Hulu, written and produced by Kevin Smith and Dave Willis, who's uh, a veteran of various adult swim properties. If you're unfortunate enough to be only be familiar with Howard from the 86th film, I will assure you that the Howard the Duck comics we're talking about today are substantially different. In addition to a reduced focus on the mechanics of interspecies sex, The comics differ from the film in their satiric tone and experimental style. Where the 86 film is effectively an adventure story, Gerber's Howard the Duck comics are a vociferous and sometimes biting satire of modern life, critiquing capitalism, media violence, misogyny, and electoral politics, among other topics. As a duck out of water, trapped in a world he never made, Howard is an ideal mouthpiece for commenting on the human condition, while the inherent absurdity of the concept mostly keeps this satire from becoming too heavy-handed. The experimentalism of the series is especially on display in issue number 16, titled Deadline Doom, which is composed of evocative splash pages paired with a lengthy essay by Gerber in which he converses with Howard about the nature of storytelling and the heavy toll of tight deadlines on the creative imagination. As this essay from Gerber suggests, Howard's popularity was a bit of a mixed blessing. In a prominent lawsuit supported by many fellow comics creators, Gerber fought for the rights to Howard and lost. He settled, in fact. Um, though he'd subsequently returned to the character several times before his untimely death in 2008 at the age of 60. There's plenty to talk about with Howard. The height of his popularity in the late 1970s coincides with tremendous changes and expansions of creative freedoms at Marvel and in the American comic book industry more generally. Howard bridges mainstream comics in the more politically oriented, creator-focused realm of independent and underground comics, which makes him great for talking about the politics of the mainstream, which I'm sure we will get to at some point today.
0: I'll start things off with the question I imagine a lot of our listeners are asking right now. Why ducks?
2: I would have thought the question was Does Michael know all of the words to disagree? <laughs> the answer is yes. I'm going to guess. Yeah. Why ducks, indeed? Well, I mean, you chose I sparing. did. <laughs> I, I'm, so I'm tempted to turn the question back around right at you, but I think we could take a stab at it as well if you would like. I'll, I'll give you first pass.
0: Um, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I'll. Howard the Duck is a series I've always been interested in and wanted an excuse to get into. Uh, I very much like the Zadarsky run, but had never read the original. Or on the Scrooge side of things, I grew up with DuckTales. I very vividly remember uh, DuckTales was the first comic book that I bought with my own Aww. money. Yeah. <laughs> I love the TV show, I love the video game. Uh, I am a I huge fan read. of the right. current DuckTales TV series. I read this book for the first time in my young adult phase and was kind of still very intrigued by the project Rosa gave himself. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Maybe a more broad, or maybe a more specific way of asking this, uh, how and why do these texts utilize anthropomorphized animals? Is there something about ducks in particular that make them well-suited for this task?
2: Oh, ducks in particular. Yeah, That's I a think, good question. I think
1: absurdism is kind of the obvious mm. go-to, right? They, they're they automatically kind of out of place. The duck is something that is not perceived to be particularly majestic. It's perceived as very kind of um, uh, 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 almost like vermin to some degree, but also cute. It waddles around. It's well, not something a... to take seriously. It's disarming in that sense.
2: They're like always duck out of water right i mean they're <laughs> ungainly on the land right they're goofy
1: right? yeah because yeah. of that yeah i think that gives kind of that um like a like a visceral component to it where you see the duck and you're instantly associating every like waddling weird little giant hefty bird thing that you've seen your entire life <laughs>
2: <laughs> my sister has more than once pointed me towards an instagram that's all ducks and people's <laughs> pets and companion ducks and emotional support ducks and not? i had ducks growing up actually and they were fabulous
0: with um the current recent release of uh untitled goose game the internet is (laughs) Mm. uh awash in uh foul related imagery and i'm all for
1: it. Is that two puns in one sense? wow
2: wow (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know i don't really have anything to add to that i mean i think it's a so like mice and rabbits have sort of dominated the cartoon animal landscape Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. both comics and cartoons for most of its history
0: and there's a very long history of using more domesticated animals uh, lots of cats and dog related shows out there right now
2: i want to like rank them like which ones have been used the most because like i'd still think mice and rabbits would be the most but cats are probably number three um it depends how you count the internet Well, yeah, no, like I was kind of thinking of like early animation and stuff, sort of some of the characters that were kind of at the at the forefront. Because I mean, even Disney has all these different animals, but you know, no one's caught on as much as the ducks and the mice. Well, but. if we
0: if we want to take a Scott McCloud approach to it, these the cartoon animal allows for more abstraction, and mm-hmm. thus we can empathize with it. But I think one of as um, Andrew brought up, it's the. Frequently, the contrast that's being emphasized. Here. Yeah, because
1: there is a specificity to the duck, right? Yeah, just like again, it, it evokes very, I would say, kind of specific connotations and, and images in a way that a more generalized animal, like even possibly a dog. I don't want to offend dog people.
2: Dogs aren't good in cartoons. I'll just say it; they're not <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know why. Like they're great in real life, but uh. oh,
1: counterpoint, Snoopy. Yeah.
2: But I mean, he doesn't talk. It's uh, just...
1: He's also the Wolverine true. of Peanuts who kind of took over that, that book and, and ruined it a little yeah. bit. So, just to deflect it again, what, what's your take, Michael, on uh, someone who is really kind of um, immersed in the appeal of the duck? What about it works for you across all these different stories? It's a little bit of the kind of appeal
0: of something like Watership Down. That's you mm. take an animal that is very, that we have this sense of being very docile. Right. And no, we have an elaborate warrior culture. And we pass stories down through generations. Like, all right, what if what if ducks ruled the world? What mm. if this is a duck world and we're just in it? And what happens when these ducks have to interact with us? And so forth.
2: I think hmm. ducks are good, too. Because, I mean, you know, the two most prominent cartoon comics ducks are like, you know, Donald Duck and Daffy Duck. And they do anger really well. Yes. Because, I mean, yeah. ducks are very angry and aggressive. So it kind of makes sense.
0: <laughs> sh- yeah, again, the... The goose game relies heavily on this idea that this is an aggressive goose who is making people's lives worse
2: Geese will do that, I've had a goose come after me before We hang out on university campuses, we've seen Yeah, Yeah. you guys at Waterloo have a big goose problem there
0: We do Yeah (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and
2: It's a very proud animal too, you know
0: Yeah, which fits very well with the depictions here Scrooge is a very proud individual uh, Howard has an enormous amount of pride in his own way too.
2: Mm-hmm. So maybe it's got that good combination of things. It's very like cute and can be very sort of helpless and humble, but also with that indignation and pride. Kind yeah, of built in, which diff- the, both out with the with the and-
0: pride that seems mm-hmm. a little bit ludicrous. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Cats are often depicted with pride, but you can kind of go like, yeah, I get it.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> When the duck yeah, blusters, yeah. it's yeah. much more yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I can't believe how much time we're talking about this. It's, it's interesting.
1: important
0: work. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is kind of a related question. Uh, Both of these texts are belled as funny (laughs) books, (laughs) but in extremely different ways. What do you think of the way that each of these creators are using the
1: comic medium to create comic humor?
2: That's a big question.
1: Hmm. I I can maybe answer this because I think my answer is going to be kind of brief. I I think Rosa is um, drawing from that that older tradition, kind of bringing it Mm -hmm. back. Yeah. Like it feels very traditionalist and nostalgic for what Carl Barks was doing. So uh, that whole Disney funny comic strip tradition that's actually been pretty well written about maybe just in the last 10 years or so. I, I think he's just kind of doing that and the the appeal of the nostalgia puts the reader in kind of like a, like a warm place where they're ready to accept these somewhat silly, sometimes surreal jokes or um, um, unexpected moments where um, Scrooge hulks out and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I, I think... Rosa is very good at setting up the multi-panel sight gag while Mm -hmm. Scrooge is ranting about something else, and it just builds and builds until this kind of dam bursts. Yeah,
1: it's that. I know I'm I'm sort of jumping over from publisher here, but it reminds me of like the Looney Tunes kind of comedy Mm that you see still today in the, the, the the cartoons when they air at weird hours of the day on obscure networks and that kind of thing. So I don't think he's innovating, but I don't think he's trying to. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, the obvious answer for Howard is that it's working against our memories of that very clean, very sanitized, mm-hmm. you know, style that conveys that type of worldview as well. So, I mean, you have this duck who resembles the Disney ducks, but chomps on a cigar, and you know, there has been a version, I think, from the Max imprint in which there was swearing and stuff in it. Yeah, and. I think yes.
0: that one had a mandate,
1: too, that we, they needed to move away from yeah. uh, the Disney resemblance.
2: Yeah, probably. Yeah,
1: I read that. There was a there was a legal issue. They they settled with Disney specifically, and Disney got to redesign the character, I th- and I, they had to use it. I think that that was
2: actually earlier, though, like, actually during the Gerber run, or okay. maybe directly before. That was in the 70s, mm. I think, that that actually happened. But I'm sure that's been an ongoing concern. I wouldn't be surprised if it hasn't been. And that was the Max version of Howard the Duck would have been before the um, Disney-Marvel merger.
0: Finally, he can... Uh, just be
2: yeah yeah i know there's no conflict anymore i guess but um but yeah i mean he's clearly like playing against that right you know having this character who's going to be this kind of existential crisis character i mean in the first issue from the gerber run that we're reading it opens with him being depressed and trying to commit suicide that's where we start in this Mm -hmm. run so i mean it's clearly trying to you know use this familiar image to stabilize to, to to destabilize you and that's sort of one of the primary sort of functions of the satire.
1: This was sort of a question I had. Do do you think that Howard the Duck is a parody of a middle aged adult from the perspective of an American teenager? <laughs>
2: well
0: what? I feel like he's stated I can see it at that at some
2: point as being 27
0: Yeah no, I mean I know <laughs> well, he, I know but... He very often feels like a mouthpiece directly for Gerber Yeah Well yeah But Gerber
1: himself is pretty young
2: at this point Right I think He would have been like 20 or something like early 20s
1: Which would be kind of fascinating for the fact that Gerber writes Howard the Duck over the course of, what, four decades, potentially? (laughs) Yeah. So how that character becomes more
0: aligned with Gerber. I mean, he certainly seems like one of those characters that were born, like, in their 40s.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, we've talked a little bit already. How do the ducks visually work as ducks? But what do you think of the various artistic approaches to these characters and the world that they're depicted in
1: well i think if we're talking about scrooge mcduck we're talking about the most iconic cartooning style in human history right the, the, the disney style uh so that, that's a that's a really big question in terms of what disney does how it works what it brings to the table it's kind of clear line uh a little bit beyond that it has a little bit more shading and stuff like that um, it's very gigantic eyes and facial expressions. So it's very child oriented in some ways, uh, which I think is actually one of the things that makes for kind of an enjoyable juxtaposition in the life and times of Scrooge mm-hmm. McDuck, because it is kind of a, I mean, at times, not always, but, but, but at times it's this very kind of old timey, biographical, slow moving story, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so there's a, a fundamental kind of um, conflict there between art and narrative, which I think is maybe coming back to that absurdity of the duck and its capacity to disarm. Uh, I think that style works really, really well for Scrooge McDuck um, for that exact reason in contrast to how Disney typically uses it. Yeah, and then then obviously the the other factor is what I've already mentioned, which is just deep nostalgia. this This is the style of every human being in North America's childhood for the most part. Um so I think there's a there's a comfort factor that's created by using that visual style that is really inviting and warm, even if it makes you feel like you don't have to think too much or if it's associated with juvenilia. Um, I, I think that just creates opportunities for Rosa to um, take you by surprise.
0: I've reviewed the um, Dorfman and Metal Art book, and it uses a lot of panels from older older Disney comics, and mm-hmm. the difference in visual detail is pretty striking, mm-hmm. uh, especially in terms of background. Like uh,
2: in terms of Rosa doing more complex
0: things?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's got time and money. <laughs> in a way, the original Disney... Um, um what i don't know i don't want to say sweatshop um bullpen mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> very much did not um so yeah i, I guess that's kind of a glow um, too i hadn't really thought about that just the idea of prettying up. i mean this, the, style. this is probably uh
0: hyperbole but especially in the earlier issues like you the, the natural road?
1: world of yeah. the united states is almost a character here yeah that's very true or the castle uh, right it kind of has that, that sort of um, um beautiful aesthetic function yeah, I still locate it within the Disney style. Um, but the development of backgrounds and settings, um, the thing that I always compare it to, and I've already kind of inferred this, would be like Tintin, mm. uh, where, where you do have that that travelogue element to right. it, where, again, the, the background becomes the experience of the setting.
2: Um, yeah, like, one of the things I was thinking about as you were, both of you were talking was just that <laughs> one of the things that makes me suspicious about the politics of Life at Times and Scrooge McDuck is that... It is doing that old Disney style, but adding this level of detail mm-hmm. and like glorifying it in such a way that it does sort of paper over some of those like politics of production from the original comics, you know, mm-hmm. it's suggesting Excellent. that That's all of the creators, you know, have yeah. the freedom and yeah. time that Tom Rosa <laughs> does, which they did not. You know, this is something that we've, I mean, I reviewed Charles Hatfield's book about Jack Kirby on a previous episode, but... So Karl Barks is, you know, the big kind of Scrooge McDuck guy that, you know, is a big influence on later people like Rosa. But I mean, he's a bit like Kirby in that he was great within the constraints of the medium. He wasn't someone that yeah. was given that freedom automatically. It's like something that people uncovered and turned into an tourist thing, even though it wasn't conceived of that by the producers at the time. So I don't know, I'm just a bit suspicious about that historical project a little bit, and maybe it makes you think about that, especially since this is sort of a redo of continuity that's sort of like streamlining Mm -hmm. and everything and bringing it into this unified universe and I don't know. I don't know what more I had to say about that. It just makes. I think
1: suspicious. it makes a really cool. We can't get into it. Comparison yeah. to like the um the CGI versions of Disney films. Yeah. Uh, just again, trying to reintroduce it with a fresh coat of paint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that might play an important factor. But I mean, if, if Rosa's work is a celebration of Barks' work, and I absolutely think it is, then having the time, money, and, and space to, to make it prettier, to not have those confines, yeah. um, that's a nice way to aggrandize Barks.
2: Yeah, that's nice. But yeah, I don't want that at the expense of highlighting History. the actual working conditions of like those <laughs> artists like in comic books, but especially Disney animation for decades and decades and decades. Right. Um, in terms of Howard the Duck and, and style, I mean, it's very different in the sense that it's definitely not that clear line style. You have elements of that incorporated just to make the satire kind of work, but it's a much messier kind mm-hmm. of style. I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting that Gene Colan comes on board as the regular penciler. he's he did a ton of different things on marvel including a very long enjoyable run on daredevil but he was also primarily known for horror comics yeah and i
0: think june dracula yeah i think there's a a degree there that like it is almost a more realist style than well it is a more realist style than marvel house style at the time Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i mean you see a little bit of that kind of like i don't want to say underground comics influence but like a little bit i mean like fritz the cat has clearly got to be an influence on this thing and i mean that was just a few years before right so, I mean, yeah, that's definitely there. I mean, it is like a little bit of sort of like a messier, darker style than Marvel House style, but definitely than the traditional Disney style, which obviously, you know, works with this being. It's, it is a satire rather than a parody, I would say, because it's not trying to mimic the style. Absolutely. It's incorporating elements of it, a bit, but, but doing something different.
1: Yeah, maybe one detail I could call attention to yeah. is um, uh, Howard the Duck's face is very frequently asymmetric
2: oh okay yeah that's a good
1: one Uh, mcleod specifically talks about that in i think making comics about how um in traditional superhero narrative symmetry Mm -hmm. indicates valor and Mm -hmm. like like presence and stuff like that and asymmetry is usually how you represent someone as beneath the superhero Mm -hmm. even potentially villainous
0: does the cigar work for that because i think it's gonna
1: make his mouth dangle on one side right but yeah, even his eyes, yeah, I mean, you'll see them frequently. Yeah. One, one's a little bit higher than the other. He looks kind of like disheveled, I guess. Is well, that makes sense in
2: terms of the underground tradition, too. You know, like the representation of the character being a representation of, you know, <laughs> either their rotten mentor state or our rotten society, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes me think very quickly of almost the fetishization of Scrooge's props that. Rosa has a like little story bit for every single part of his iconic costume, yeah. and he's he is a duck. He's not wearing a lot of clothes, but yeah. every part of it comes from
1: somewhere. I feel that implied pause for applause whenever uh-huh. they like put on Scrooge's glasses, or he, he buys this weird coat because it was a cheap deal. <laughs>
2: I was disappointed though that some of those details weren't as interesting as they could be. He just picked up the glasses at some point. There's no particular story, really? and I was disappointed by that. The coat had a whole thing. It was like he bought it from well, there, like a thrift place. In there Moscow. was the whole
0: story of like the necessity for the glasses that yeah. he had to get it because it, because he made a bad contract because he couldn't yeah. read the fine prints. Mm-hmm. I know.
2: Which yeah, I guess. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. <laughs> it felt
1: very Star Wars prequel-ish sometimes.
2: Sometimes, yeah. Some sort of like the compulsion to explain things that possibly didn't need explaining. Yeah. I was kind of, I didn't really care about where he got his classes from, but now <laughs> yeah. I know.
0: So both of these books are written by American comic book creators, about non-superhero characters at a time where superheroes are the dominant genre of American comics. So where do they sit in relation to those
2: superheroes? Um, This was a time of, I don't know what I would say, it was a time of great innovation and kind of like political consciousness at Marvel. It was a time when a lot of younger creators got to just like throw whatever they wanted at the wall and see what stuck. Hmm. And there were a lot of things that didn't stick. Um, You had kind of It being opened up a little bit by the slight revision of the comics code Mm -hmm. in the, what was that, 71, 72? um, In and around the Spider-Man drug story, where the previous comics code had said you couldn't have any drug things at all in comics. And then because they were going to do the Spider-Man anti-drug story, that kind of led to them relaxing the code just a little bit. And they part of the relaxing of it, which we talked about in our previous episode about um, Tomb of Dracula and American Vampire, um, one of the ways they relaxed it was the allowance of um, monster characters' horror comics to effectively come back, and Mm -hmm. Howard the Duck originates in a monster horror comic, which wouldn't have been allowed before the code was revised. So in a way, he is a direct product of some of those changes that were happening in the 1970s. I see a lot of similarity, to be honest. Like, I, I want to say, like, Howard is so different than the superhero stuff Marvel was doing at the time, but I've read a lot of 70s Marvel and I honestly see a lot of similarity. Well, there's,
0: there was a lot less crossover than I would have guessed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. We have Spider-Man in, like, the first issue. Yeah. Just a, Spider-Man's usually, Spider-Man like, himself, a launch issue yeah. to like, yeah, to, to help launch a new book. But, um... Damon Hellstrom shows yeah, up a yeah. later. Yeah! He's got a memorable appearance. And
0: um, Doctor Strange, and that's that's about...
2: Yeah, it was less that, though, that made it seem marvel to me, and more just... The 70s Marvel stuff was, like, very... I don't know what, like, high-minded in a way, in mm-hmm. terms of, like, being very, like, explicit with its politics. Right. And not always in, mm-hmm. like, a positive way, but definitely in a passionate way.
0: Yes, high-minded, but sometimes
2: heavy-handed. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, this was, like, the era in which, you know, like... <laughs> the vision and the scarlet witches sort of like romance like was happening and they're getting attacked by religious fundamentalists and stuff like that and like the captain america becoming nomad like saga happens in the wake of watergate
1: jim starlin
2: yes all of the jim no. starlin stuff i see this <laughs> i see the gerber stuff as being i guess maybe that's almost what i was thinking about directly so i'm glad you brought that up but just in terms of certain creators being allowed tremendous freedom in sort of Mm -hmm. the context of 70s Marvel that you couldn't really imagine in 60s Marvel. I mean, that you would let sort of these auteur creators like Starlin or like Gerber design these whole kind of new universes within Marvel Mm -hmm. with characters that are basically mouthpieces for them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for them to complain about a lot of the hot topics of the day, like pollution, like politics, like a lot of different things. And try to make critiques of misogyny and kind of Mm -hmm. aggression and violence that you know there's a lot i could say about that which i don't even know where i land on it Mm -hmm. i appreciate that they're making that effort but definitely it's a bit um undercut by how often beverly is subjected to sexual harassment and howard does Mm -hmm. not care Mm -hmm. at all
1: there's also the fact that um I think a lot of that era in the 1970s Marvel, particularly creators like Gerber, and then again Starlin and a few others, um, that's where they actually started critiquing Marvel.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah At yeah. the
1: same time. That yeah. had really never happened before
0: in Marvel yeah. Comics. I think one of the more striking early issue moments is when Howard goes on a rant about kung fu comics. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's Master an of interesting
2: one. Yeah, and then, I mean, uh, yes, he <laughs> becomes a kung fu expert anyway. So, like, that's a good example, right, of how the satire can be very complicated and problematic, right? Because, as you're saying, he becomes, like, a kung fu expert in the comic, which sort of, but he is very explicit in his critique of kung mm-hmm. fu comics. He yells at all of these, like, not-Asian kids that, like, you're just appropriating this culture and to feel powerful and masculine, and how dare you? And I mean it was I almost like I blinked at it, I was like, this is surprisingly well, a accurate. <laughs> and but, and but from expensive. the magazine that's yeah. like publishing
0: yeah. uh Iron Fist at the time. Yeah, so I mean another one.
2: Like it wasn't it wasn't just monster comics like a lot of sort of previous well, Kung Fu was sort of a new genre in that era, but you right. know, you had an expansion of genres within mainstream comics that you hadn't had as much in the in the sixties and the immediate wake of the comics code in the
1: Andrew, what about the Uncle Scrooge side of things? I don't know. For for okay, so I, I think we have to put this in the context of nineteen nineties mainstream comics in the superhero. Um,
0: do we want nineties rather than eighties? I kind of
1: want uh ah.
0: The thing that eighties gives it is that like nostalgia Indiana Jones thing, right? But that's not really the superhero part at all. So
1: I mean, I can see. I, I think at the time Rosa would have been at least writing the back half of this. We're right. we're, we're seeing a huge transition in the superhero comic from um, realistic representation to what McLeod calls non-iconic abstraction in the form mm-hmm. of these like idealized god and goddess figures. Mm-hmm. And everything gets kind of the homogenized um, in, in, in a way that maybe you know Gerber would have something to say about um, So I, I read Scrooge McDuck is kind of not a response to that, as you said, because the chronology doesn't line up that way. But I, I think of it as a 90s comic, and I think of it in terms of how a 90s <laughs> audience would interpret it. As again, this like refreshing nostalgia. This isn't guns and pouches yeah. and Greek gods uh, who are named Slim um, <laughs> to, to, to reference uh, a weird thing X Men comics do. Uh So it's. I love that nickname. <laughs> that's Cyclops'
2: nickname. So
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, he's he's Arnold Schwarzenegger by the I time of the 90s I roll hate around. I they draw him that <laughs> it's way. It's so weird. That's
2: his nickname. And it's they canon. still call him Slim. Oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> totally on top.
1: No, no worries. So, um, yeah, no, I, I feel like the appeal of Rosa's revival of the old Bark stuff is, uh, again, nostalgia. Connecting then, us to a simpler, earlier era uh, that's just fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And I'm kind of cheating with the question that
0: even in this time, I don't think Disney comics were being written for the North American audience.
1: No, that's very true. It was all European at yeah. this point.
2: Could we maybe speak to that history a little bit? Because I'm not sure how much all of our listeners will be kind of familiar. I know you talked about it a little bit in your intro, Andrew, but the fact that these were embraced by a European audience in a way that they were not embraced and by.
1: exported the- globally, not just to Europe. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, so, so Disney um, obviously became an international phenomenon very quickly, like really, really quickly. And it did have a really strong presence in North American comics beginning... Um, pre-world war ii anyway yeah. i'm pretty close to, to when comics were taking off uh and then um by the time we're into maybe 70s 80s 90s i'm not sure where exactly i would pin it down to that popularity in the north american audience faded in a way that it didn't fade in mainland europe um so as a result of that i'm um, obviously thinking demographic targeting wise um disney was looking at the european market as the market where they were going to be able to sell a lot of their comic books uh, and, and the Scrooge McDuck comic, as we mentioned, I mean, it wasn't even originally published in English. I think it was in mm-hmm. Danish. And, and a
0: major presence in South America as the um, How to Read Donald Duck Goodson into
1: right. Uh, and then it, it crossed over. Right, it, it was really good. Everyone liked it. They made an English version, and it, it, it I mean, I think, an audience.
0: Well, Ducktales would probably be the
1: tipping point.
0: As what year as was Scrooge Ducktales? Said. I'm sure you know. early 90s. Really nice. So we're, we're maybe
1: late 89. Okay. That would, that would track for sure, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, why? I mean, you know, I can hazard a few guesses, but why were these comics embraced in these other contexts more than they were in the North American
1: context? Okay. This requires me to speculate a lot. Yeah, I I say, <laughs> not, not being my, a European my answers, person. My answer is speculation as well. But. My inclination would be, and we've seen this before in other cultural mediums, where the myth that the American dream stopped mm. being popular in American media in right around the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in other countries who were detached from that, like actual American presence, seemed more open to that story being told and retold. Uh, and, you know, you get things like you know, the, the Western becoming wildly popular in Italy yeah. uh, at a time when Americans have no interest in it whatsoever. Um, so you, you get that kind of weird um, um, self-consuming culture being rejected, I guess.
0: I've seen the also the explanation that the comics were easier to export than a lot of other Disney properties.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just, I wonder when you're sort of divorced from that immediate context of these comics, too, you have sort of a presumption of satire that maybe the American audience wasn't... So I I, I do think, because, I mean, you know, we have a little bit of this sense as Canadians, and I consume American culture some like this sometimes. Like, I don't take it at its word. I sort of, you know... You're making fun of it a little bit, a bit in an affectionate way, because you have yeah, that yeah. distance from it, so you have that privilege. And, I mean, I could see that being the case with, with some of the Scrooge <clears throat> McDuck comics, you know. Like, y- you can see them as being sort of <laughs> satire on capitalism, in a sense. There's I mean,
0: uh, a further complication, too, mm, that's that interesting too. in a lot, in various periods, I think, of Disney comic history, uh, Duckburg was not American-situated. Mm-hmm. Uh, which
1: does yeah. allow the universality to come out a bit more. Yeah. yeah, and we can even see a bit of that in adaptation too, yeah. right? Where depending on which language it's printed in, right. it's, it's a different entire country. Yeah, And I, I think maybe that also affects the the narratives a little bit. I don't think this is true of Scrooge McDuck because it does seem um, like a yeah, distinctly there, American story. There were
0: some distinctly like uh, localized stories yeah. too.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean definitely it has to be a factor of the audiences for comics just being so different between those spaces though too right i mean the audience for american comics in the 1970s i mean you know the adult comics from that era were underground comics which you know disney comics can't fit into that that just is antithetical like anything with that clear line commercial style would have been considered like kitty crap like there just wasn't an appetite to appreciate that kind of stuff on a quote-unquote adult level in American culture in the 1970s, like well into the 1980s, I would say.
1: Yeah, where that cultural insecurity wouldn't really have been there in Europe, where comics were much more well-established.
2: Yeah, the cultural insecurity is like yeah, what I'm getting at. You Hmm. know, like it took a while, I think, for American culture to kind of appreciate something like the Karl Barks Donald Duck whereas like, people in Europe in particular with the band des tradition were a bit more equipped to appreciate the artistry of that.
0: We've touched on this idea of the American monomyth and the connection that Howard the Duck has with contemporary politics. Let's get really deep into that. Uh, what do you see as the political engagements or political constructs raised by these texts? Very different, so maybe two separate discussions, but both very focused on American culture.
2: Mm-hmm. Can we start with Howard only because I think we're gonna end up having more to say about Scrooge. But yeah, right. sure. I mean, one of the thing I actually wanted to ask you guys, I mean, there were, I couldn't even put my finger on it or kind of completely, it was so, like, idiosyncratic, sort of, like the critiques that were being leveled mm-hmm. in Howard against artists, because there's a number of artist figures that are really pilloried in this comic, like, particularly, like, the second issue, I think it's issue number two, which is about the guy who becomes, like, a turnip man, mm. and he's, like, an artist who works as a security guard, but not an artist he's a writer actually um i
0: think the sleepy guy is the one that com- becomes the yeah is the artist
2: yeah he's an artist so like twice in like six issues we have kind of like a parody of a sort of a creative person who ends up being revealed as not a very good person in part because they're living in fantasy instead mm-hmm. of reality so this guy in the Tournament Man issue um he is this fantasy writer friend of Beverly's that, you know, clearly wants to be her boyfriend, but she doesn't think about him that way. So kind of a nice guy trope kind of a thing. Mm. And he gets criticized in the course of the issue. So what happens is he encounters this turnip from space that turns him into Turnip Man in exchange for... So the turnip says it'll allow him to be the hero he's always wanted to be because he really believes in these kind of mythic heroes, which, you know, implicitly he really believes in these masculine archetypes that Beverly's clearly less into. But anyway, he agrees to let himself be taken over this over by this turnip thing, and it eventually tries to take over his whole body and like his whole mind, and you know <laughs> exactly that. It's almost
0: yeah, the, the closest yeah. it gets to a kind of pure superhero story. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So he becomes this superhero Maybe. that's like turnip man. Um he immediately goes and well, the turnip who's taken over him like abducts Beverly and says that it wants to experience sex in a human body. And we get this weird gap in time where it says 54 minutes later. And then Beverly says something like, wow, you really have changed, like, dude, or whatever. And it's really unclear what happens there. I would assume Beverly is raped. Um, It's very unclear. Like, clothes aren't shown, torn, or taken off or anything. But it's very explicitly that there's a time jump and we're not sure what happens. And she makes, you know, a double entendre about his, oh, she explicitly says, sorry, I'm forgetting, that he certainly has a lot more stamina now than he used to. Oh. So, yeah, something happened. <sighs> um, anyway, so that's highly uncomfortable. But what I, beyond the problematics of that, which again gets to that sort of very imperfect critique of misogyny that I brought up earlier, just the way that he's treating like these artists and writer figures, like he's really like, these people who are living in fantasy worlds need to come out of these worlds. They need to embrace reality. It's very strange. Like, it's clearly very personal for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I just felt like I was starting to psychoanalyze Gerber. Like yeah. the I mean, it's, of it's issues hard not to since
0: Gerber psychoanalyzes Gerber. I know, <laughs>
2: I know. But I don't know what I was kind of making of that. I felt like I was really getting to know a perspective on the world specific to him. But I didn't really know where to take it beyond that.
0: Well, is there a way you think that this fits with the more overt political critique does it does there is there something there that jives with the running for president and howards like well calling it a platform is giving it too much credit but like the whole like politicians are crooks none of the parties are giving it to you straight you need some honest engagement with what's going on around you well
2: honestly i feel like we could do a whole episode on like the two the two issues where howard runs for president just because it's so out of step with current political discourse in like weird ways like i mean first of all like the kind of like uh, dropout nihilism of it where like everybody's a crook and there's no point in voting or being involved i stay as far away from politics as possible i think
0: I feel like there's some yeah. connection to the creative side there that like yeah. no one's in touch. All all you dreamers.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. Well, but it's confusing I mean, though, right? Maybe
0: maybe there's some crossover between the fig, the country music star figure because he's got the music part and the fake image part.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we get this country but it, music it's star. It's never clear what he's trying to, to say with that guy. Or, like yeah, I don't know that that really goes anywhere. I mean, I think part of it is that the. the Gerber's on politics aren't clear to us. Yes, itself, I mean Gerber
0: says data. some at one point that his method of writing is to not think about what's going to come yeah, next yeah. until it's time and that shows in some places. <laughs> anyway, I was
2: going to say with the Howard running for president thing, I think it just seems very out of step with like post-Trump era politics in which I think a lot of like progressive people accept which I think Howard or Gerber would have defined himself in in his time um except that it's not just dropping out and not voting like is not a good idea because mm-hmm. look what this led to right and i mean also you know the cult of personality and mm-hmm. like how that's affected us and like the sierra like sits uncomfortably with the howard for president thing where he's effectively just you know a cipher idea that doesn't stand for anything but people are sick of all the lying so they're just gonna vote for him even though it'll mm-hmm. probably destroy the country it does remind me a little bit of why some people voted for trump but that's obviously not something Gerber could have foreseen in this era. But it was hmm. interesting revisiting this political presidential race satire from kind of the perspective of our present moment.
0: Andrew, do you wanna <laughs> add to that Howard discussion?
1: Um, I don't have a lot to say. I, I, I have something about Howard the Duck and the way it's written, maybe this this does speak to what Anna's talking about, to me feels like like a little irresponsible. There's a lot of wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. in in howard and particularly through that beverly relationship as, as anna mentioned uh and beverly is like a kind of woman who i, I have to believe does not exist anywhere <laughs> but is very much she an makes ideal all her
0: money through modeling naked and she has other personality traits I she's think very that, yeah. much like a
2: playboy fantasy of sexual liberation in which she's this beautiful liberated woman but part of her liberation is that she doesn't mind like hanging out with this creep guy who is howard to be clear mm. howard does mm. not treat her well no um she doesn't mind she doesn't hanging, seem to offer her anything hanging out with him and just being cool with it she's Damn. like a cool girl right
1: yeah. yeah and her complete absence of agency is especially problematic in a lot of ways uh and, and just again this idea of the this kind of detestable character i think he's clearly designed mm-hmm. to be detestable at the same time that he's designed to be kind of cute uh is and maybe go ahead of a media curve there yeah i don't know i just I, again I, I, I maybe i'm just in the same boat as Anna. i just feel like it's it's badly out of step mm-hmm. um with how we might interpret it today I don't know how an audience back then would have read it. I know Howard the Duck was responsible for the revival of Marvel's ethos that uh, they had lost after maybe the first three years uh, mm-hmm. of running where they were regarded as being very subversive. Mm-hmm. And then they weren't. They regarded as playing it safe. And Howard the Duck sort of triggered that 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 second um, 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 wave uh, of Marvel being relevant again. Um, but if this is what relevant <laughs> is, like I I have problems. I, I think it's just maybe it all just comes down to this is a book that I don't think has aged well
2: yeah i mean i kept this maybe is another digression but i kept thinking a lot about the representation of like the sexual harassment stuff in it Mm. i mean Mm. the 70s was an era in which that was starting to be taken somewhat seriously for the first time because feminists pushed for it to be taken seriously the way it's handled in this book is just so interesting and i'm not even saying this in a way to call it out or blame it because it's not out of step with anything else that was that was being published at the time and again in most ways this book this comic is very progressive and, like, liberal in his politics. But the way it presented sort of the sexual harassment of Beverly, like, when she's working at the presidential convention, mm-hmm. she says, like, at the end of the day, like, oh, I can't sit down because my butt's been pinched so much. No comment from Howard. Yeah. So that's just kind of some of the typical stuff that happens throughout the issue. And I mean, you know, you get stuff like the country music singer that you brought up, just like, I think we probably can find a job for a pair like you looking directly at her enormous breasts, that kind of thing. That's just peppered throughout. And it's
1: normalizing that behavior. Yeah, it is. It is, because
2: it's implicitly critiquing it, because it's usually like jerks and bad guys that are doing the harassing.
1: And it's not like... But um, Howard does it. Well, yeah, it's, it's not like
2: <laughs> yeah
0: he wrote in a character whose thing is that he calls out other people. That yeah. Howard sits back at those moments is telling. Right.
1: I
2: mean, he's he's situated interestingly there because he doesn't sexualize Beverly necessarily because he kind of thinks she's gross because she's a human, even though they do end up in a relationship. But
1: mm, I mean, it's, it's iffy. But he's he in her bedroom also, very quickly, yeah. and yes. it's not explicit, but. I know. He's yeah,
2: there. and yeah, he is very
0: clearly like getting involved whenever it looks like she might be interested in some other guy.
2: Yeah, I know. So, like, that's definitely an element. But, yeah. but I mean, anyway, the, the thing that I found interesting about it is in terms of, you know, this kind of time, time capsule kind of thing, I think there's sort of an understanding, and I think you see a lot of this even now with the apathy about something like the casting couch controversies where, look, Howard is being abused by society and Beverly's being abused by society, and the way that they're being abused is exactly the same. Mm
1: hmm that's kind of a false equivalence is
2: kind of treating it but like yeah they're not it's not the same and you know there are different power dynamics that are involved here and they're not oppressed in exactly the same way and that's a very disingenuous argument and yet i think it's an argument that a lot of people wouldn't have any trouble embracing now because again i see that with the casting coach stuff like well male actors get objectified and mistreated too therefore we're not concerned about what weinstein did right and I just, I, I just saw that kind of ideology in this comic. And again, that's not a big zing against Gerber. It's not like that's the main point of this comic. It was just lingering in the background there.
1: Yeah, and obviously he is a product of his time. Exactly, that, that's exactly. not an excuse, but it's something we do have to contextualize. For sure. Well, that's depressing. Sorry. If that well, <laughs> ends up being weird, we can cut it too. It was just, it was something I was
2: Well, we can it shift at. to,
0: a, I'm sure it's going to be a really <laughs> yeah. happy topic. Uh, how do you think, politics and uncle scrooge work
1: so i i really like the life of uncle scrooge or wow the life of scrooge mcduck life and times of scrooge mcduck as um I, again this idea of uh, a celebration of the american dream but i do think that it has a little bit of a bite to it uh now like the, the american dream thing is absurdly surfaced with mm-hmm. again you go to america yeah. you go west you, there's teddy roosevelt is yes, there he teams up with teddy roosevelt <laughs> on numerous occasions three occasions by my count <laughs> so, <laughs> in a 12 issue series yeah So there's that. And it it does work. Scrooge has this vision. I'm going to go make something of myself. He goes to America and he he does kind of, I mean, there's other pieces in there as well. Um, Yes.
0: When he isn't in America and somehow behaves worse.
1: Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, his his adventures in Africa are are rough. Yeah. But um, at the same time, this like breaking bad, like narrative that unfolds of him progressively losing his humanity and his sympathy uh, and and that being a commentary i don't think exclusively on like the world is harsh or something like that which is what, what he says is mouthpiece for that philosophy mm-hmm. i think it's specifically connected to his pursuit of wealth and the kind of people you're going to interact with in that scenario so rosa is kind of having it both ways you've got this kind of cartoonish representation of you know haha the old miser um, but at the same time you have a genuinely kind of sorrowful story undercutting a lot of those Mm -hmm. jokes uh, of a human being losing their faith in humanity uh, and only maybe recapturing it at the very very end when you're ridiculously old and even that's incredibly debatable
0: yeah well the the marxist critique that i've read very recently it's presented as terms as the failing of an individual rather than it's the money itself that if only scrooge loved his family more
1: Right. Then he
0: could fix it. It's okay yeah. to be a billionaire as long as you involve your family and your adventures and pay them a pittance sum that is comical.
1: And
2: specifically really to be like a colonialist billionaire, which
1: he definitely <laughs> is. Yeah, and it does set up family versus wealth, which I think yeah. is interesting as a binary. Um, And sometimes I think it does some kind of cool stuff with it. Yeah. And other times, reductive and simplistic.
0: Well, I'm it. I think it's very telling that... Rosa kind of gives up on the era between Scrooge amassing his fortune and becoming the billionaire type, like the part where he invests in industry and yeah. does those kind of deals. Like It's a one page. Yeah. yeah. The, the interesting part is Scrooge McDuck, fr- individualist frontiersman,
1: yeah. who
0: does it all for themselves, who earns all of their money square, yeah. never has to rely on anyone. It's not a lucky dime. You better believe it's not a lucky dime.
1: But I, I do like that fundamental conflict in just literally trying to decide whether his pursuit of wealth, we can call it greed, we could call it ambition. Mm-hmm. It, it could be either. Uh, whether that's his tragic flaw or his most noble trait. <laughs> and the answer is both, which I think is, like, I, I like that level of complexity yeah. in the narrative. It's not obviously moralizing to me, even though it does set up a kind of simple binary.
2: See, I would argue, though, that <laughs> it's, flipping, it's flipping it into too much of a glorification of the wealth aspect because as much as it's critiqued when we see his family desert him and stuff and we see him being sad a few times when that happens all the stories are still about him adventuring that is the story like he's a hero, he's an adventurer the pursuit is that mm -hmm. we're not seeing what his family does after he leaves we're seeing what he's doing
1: yeah, and that makes sense, because of course he never spends the money, right? That, that, yeah. That's the other element. It's not worth anything to him other than the pursuit of it, and that's the fundamental ending reveal, which is the money is um, a memorialization of the adventures. It's not a currency to him. and Which is like depicted here as like the most noble thing to do with money, but also... Yeah, yeah it really um, is. But also, like... share. <laughs> sure. It's not like that's not
0: the capitalist model. Like Growth at any expense, the growth is more important than anything else.
2: Well, I mean... It just reminds me of one of my favorite American literary novels, McTeague by Frank Norris, where its critique of hoarding your wealth in a very Scrooge McDuck fashion ends with the two guys in the desert, you know, uh, with the bag of gold coins that they've been fighting over and it's come to this point. And the one guy is chained up in the desert without any water to the corpse of the guy who shot over the gold. And that's how they drive the satire home. He's going (laughs) to suffocate to death in the desert chained to a bag of gold and a corpse so that's a satire of capitalism. <laughs> right <laughs> Scrooge uh. mcduck not so much
1: yeah again I, I think there are times you could very easily argue this is a celebration of capitalism
2: yeah. i mean how do you guys feel we are supposed to are we supposed to like him I think so. I think, yeah, at the the end of the day,
0: that I think that maybe is either the attempt here or you could admire it as something that Rosa pulls off, that you take what is a one-dimensional cartoon character and try to give them this arc, Mm -hmm. an arc that the character was very much not designed for. He was designed for this repeated one-off adventures. Mm -hmm. How do we forge that into something that is a journey? Right. And whether or not it actually does that, I guess is what we're talking about.
2: Well, can we talk about the Africa episode then? Like, kind of don't want really to. Interferes with um, us being able to like him as a character. So
0: let's establish there are two two <laughs> Africa episodes. Oh, yeah. the first one is just kind of weird, s- adventurous with south this. Africa wants to yeah. That one.
2: Yeah, they come into a scene in that one or where it's okay people...
0: because it's the bad rich person who... Yeah, I know. But right. there's
2: a scene early in that story where I remember they come up to a diamond mine and people are just working. And he's like, isn't that great? And I was just like... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah,
0: it, it feels like Rosa's trying to push it the other way with the Australian adventure where he... Mm-hmm. uh Where yeah. the, it's... It's very—it's more the noble, savage depiction of the mm-hmm. Aborigine, which
1: has its own problems. Well, I think I mentioned earlier right, a <clears> few <throat> times that um, one of the defining elements of this text is nostalgia, but there's a political nostalgia there that's really uncomfortable. And
0: I guess the one I've been dancing from, the African, the other African scene, which yeah. is this... The Bombi? Yeah, based on a real story that apparently... All right, so what happens in the <laughs> our version is Scrooge decides that playing at fair... Just this once, he's not going to play it fair, and instead he's going to burn the village down and make them sign a deal under false pretenses. Or
2: like, he burns down this African tribe's village and just makes <laughs> them flee so that he can buy their rubber, like, you know, trees or something. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: And the, one of the natives gets uh, wise to this plan and sends a zombie after Scrooge that apparently haunts him for the rest of his life and it's depicted as this kind of minimalist fallout is the reasonable response is just as much punishment as he deserves no more
2: well and the zombies primarily used for like comic relief thereafter i mean it's Mm -hmm. sort of comic that it keeps chasing him rather than a real comeuppance a
0: really weird comedy where it's implied that it causes the titanic to sink
2: yeah yeah oh
1: yeah that's we haven't (laughs) talked about that there's a there's a whole lot of force come Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the other way book. to
0: look at this that Scrooge McDuck becomes kind of the catalyst of the American, American history. Dream, yeah. And American yeah, history. Yeah. Like, uh, he played a part in, I think, convincing Roosevelt yeah. to. Yeah. He told him he should go yeah. into politics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of, like, one off gags like that.
1: Yeah. But
2: that, like, burning the village down thing is oh, like, it's... You, you can't come back from <laughs> no. that. Like, I mean, it's just. Yeah. <clears throat> I. I I found it striking the presumption that he could come back from that at all as a character, and I was just like, "You're a monster. <laughs> this is not like." I had one <coughs> too many drinks one time and said something offensive at the office party. <laughs> this is like you burned down a goddamn village. <laughs> like do people die. Like I mean,
0: well, the, um, the fuck. One one interpretation. Uh, there's no ethical way to get, get a
1: billion dollars.
2: Well, yeah, right, sure. This is true.
1: Again, the other pricey bag. But, I mean, the idea that he can, you know, then spend his Christmases with Huey, Dewey, and Louie for the next many years is complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just like giving him kind of a reward at all when he hasn't come to any kind of reckoning with that particularly bad. And then if you read the Titanic thing back into it, he's got the zombie that's been following him because of that crime. And that zombie then causes the death of more thousands of people because he sinks the Titanic. So Uh Scrooge's got a lot of blood on his hands.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Feathers no (laughs) um yeah it's i think i i can see what rosa is going for in the terms of see how far he's fallen he's just like all the other unethical billionaires now
1: well there's Uh, a direct citizen kane homage sequence right (laughs)
0: yeah especially yeah the last issue is basically that yeah Ariel Dorfman and Armand Mantelart's 1971 book, How to Read Donald Duck, is a Marxist critique of the Disney Comics brand, and by extensions, a critique of Walt Disney and American cultural imperialism. David Kunzel's introduction, written for the 1991 edition, provides critical background for the context of the book. It was created in the wake of the 1970 election the communist leading Popular Unity Alliance in Chile. By 1973, the alliance would be disposed by an american supported military coup and this book along with the others commissioned by the popular unit unity party would be ordered burned and its author- authors fleeing the country in fear of their lives the context lends a sense of urgency to the book as a whole adding a somewhat uncomfortable weight to a critique of comic books aimed at a child audience dorfman and mantelart's portion of the book begins with a brief preface disavowing our academic jargon And an introduction establishing their general premise. Far from being just books for the child audience, they argue that these books constitute an adult projection onto the child, where, quote, the imagination of the child is conceived as the past and future utopia of the adult. The subsequent six chapters build on this claim and on each other, forming a compact study of their subject material. Chapter one Uncle Buy Me a Contraceptive has the authors pointing out that the Disney comic world is one where parents have been largely removed. The result is that far from maintaining family values, the Disney books erase family values, allowing for a nephew-uncle antagonism that can be reversed, but only ever temporarily. Chapter two moves the child focus onto colonial implications, pointing out that these comics portray the inhabitants of other countries as childish noble savages. And the choice for the characters seems to be either accept the adult values in their everyday life, or follow the child savage who will always be backwards and harmless. Further, as explored in chapter three, this depiction is carried into the working class who are either evil revolutionaries or again, noble savages. And each case must be kept in what's portrayed as their natural state and their natural place in the world. The idea of natural order extends in chapter four to the notion of capital, where those who seek money are reviled unless it's accumulation for its own sake as with Scrooge or to purchase luxury goods, as with Donald. There are thieves in these stories, but their existence is presented as either natural or diseased, never a result of societal condition. The fifth chapter examines how Disney presents this natural order as a matter of fate, distancing the current state from the labor that is required to make it into being. The focal character for this discussion is Scrooge McDuck, and they argue that presenting Scrooge as a pathetic, passionate creature makes the reader see him as a sentimentalized individual rather than a member representing a class. Finally, the last chapter explores what this natural order does to a sense of history, where other cultures are reduced to insufficient expressions of Duckburg. All history leads to Duckburg, and any possible flaws of the system aren't inherent, but excesses to be removed. How to Read Donald Duck is a complicated text to reflect on in the present moment. On the one hand, it's maybe a hard sell to get to read by an American, North American audience who doesn't have the cultural histories of the comics it's describing. But with our recent reading of The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, it took on a new meaning for me. Rosa's work comes long after the book's publication, but it seems that sometimes almost in spite of himself, Rosa was writing to Dorfman and Madelmart's thesis. It does present Scrooge with a somewhat larger family, the parents have not been entirely erased, but it follows the rest of the book to a T, flattening the history of the 19th century essentially into the story of Scrooge, flattening history to put a duck's face on it, as the authors put it. While Dorfman and Madelart only briefly bring up superheroes to contrast their larger-than-life exploits with Disney everyday grounding, most of what they argue for Disney comics applies to that genre as well. The frequent erasure of parents, the flattening of other cultures and histories, the de-emphasis of the everyday in favor of inventors and millionaires. Further, the argument of the peril of Disney cultural imperialism is clearly a bigger issue now than ever, Disney owning ever a greater part of the media landscape. While the specific Marxist approach in this text feels a little dated now, in tone and execution, the power and presence of the book justifies its objective and validates its argument that comics constitute more than just kid stuff. And that concludes our episode. Uh, We want to issue a thank you to St. Jerome's College for the use of their equipment and a thanks to Anna for the use of her space. Please follow us on Twitter. We are at three panel contrast where three is the number three to leave you today we're going to have a kind of generalist prompt uh what are some things that you would recommend for the readers
1: uh well in the spirit of you know a little bit of comedy i would like to recommend woman world by aminder Dollywall. uh it is a webcomic turned graphic novel that is about a world where um men have died off over the course of a couple generations and all the women are kind of on their own and they're Fine. <laughs> and, and the legacy of men is reduced to like DVDs of Paul Blart Mall Cop, uh, and just everything is um. I don't know. It, it, it's a very fun subversion of like patriarchal culture in a way that is kind of really, really entertaining and will make you laugh a lot.
2: Oh my God, mine is going to be so <laughs> funny in conversation with you. I was thinking about my relationship with Disney. I mean, as you were talking, Andrew, about, you know, we're, we've all been shaped by Disney in one way or another. And I didn't have, like, VCR or whatever growing up. So we used to rent one from, like, the local store and then bring that home. And then we would get to rent a few a few movies, too. We watched Watership Down so many times, which I probably watched that movie for the first time when I was, like, six, which was way too young. And it completely traumatized me. And I've seen it, like, 25 times. Anyway, the other movie that we always used to rent, which is the Disney movie that I've seen the most times, is Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. And the reason we liked that one is because it has a little bit of a different animation style. It has sort of a harsher style than a lot of the, well, basically all of the other classic Disney movies. And some of the really frightening imagery in it. I mean, that's the one of Maleficent. She's mm-hmm. so good. And specifically the scene where all of the ivy grows all over the castle, the thorns grow all over the castle and destroys it. We used to, like, mm-hmm. love that scene, my sister and I as kids. So... That's my favorite Disney thing.
1: I like the song in it, it. too. The song is very good.
2: (laughs) But in terms of gender, not such a good story. No, no, no. But it's got a lot of (laughs) stuff to recommend it besides. And I don't honestly think I thought about those other things as a kid. I'm sure they affected me, but I I mostly liked it for that thorn scene.
0: Um, I'm going to make two plugs. Uh, First, for the new DuckTales cartoon, which is actually in the same kind of spirit in Don, of Don Rosa in a lot of ways, in the sense that it is very aware of what's come before it, and it is kind of doing an act of, let's bring it all in. Uh, there are references to gummy bears. Uh, Tailspin is part of this universe. Uh, Darkwing Duck is a part of it. they draw drawn other things from the comics. Uh, just a kind of a reverence for everything related to Scrooge and his family. I also want to recommend the Chip Zdarsky, uh, Howard the Duck run. It's a little uneven. I think all attempts to revitalize Howard after Gerber have been kind of uneven. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if there's one issue that really stands strongly in it, I think it's the issue where Howard and Beverly have a reunion and it's this wonderfully complex single issue conversation where it, it goes through all the complexity of talking to someone that you used to be deeply emotionally connected to and you don't quite know where you stand anymore. Aww. Yeah, it's... And in, it is part of a larger comic about, you know, a weird duck. So, <laughs> uh, Aww, fun. All right, uh, thanks for listening.